founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Thomas Wally, CEO and co-founder of Unicast, the location data and analytics company committed to understanding how people move around the planet. Sophisticated and data-driven companies within software, analytics, data science, telco, and consultancies trust Unicast to make them build better products and make smarter decisions with real-world location data. Prior to Unicast, Thomas was a part of the early team at the music streaming service Tidal, which was acquired by Jay-Z in 2014 and later by Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Square, where he led business development and partnerships globally. Thomas shares his opinion on tech and startups regularly as a member of Forbes Technology Council and has been regularly profiled by Inc. Magazine, Business Insider, The New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. He is an advisory board member at Geospatial World and an LP in the Nordic Web, a seed stage, a seed stage fund investing in the growing Nor- Nordic startup scene. Here to share his incredible journey is Thomas. So Thomas, my friend, thank you for being here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I'm excited. Yes. I'm so pumped to have you here. Um, man, first, we took our stab at kind of understanding your journey a little bit and what it is that you're, you and your company do. But uh, in your own world, in your own words, tell us about the journey to get here. Yeah. So, and this is a quite of a long, long journey. And like many people don't know this, but about 20 years ago, I set out a plan and that plan had like a 20 year end goal. And that was to start my own uh, company. Uh, and I had kind of this plan ever since about, and it, it, it was kind of like uh, four steps across that journey. It was first, someone told me that, hey, you should get some education, but it should be something that is very versatile that you can use anywhere. So I studied communication and business in, in Copenhagen. And then someone told me, that, hey, you know what? Working for the big four, the consultancy firms like PwC, Ernst & Young, et cetera, it's super helpful because you really learn how businesses works. So I did that. Um, and then my uncle, he's also an, an entrepreneur. He said, you know what, Thomas, let somebody else pay for your, your mistakes first. And that's where I was a part of the early uh, stage team at Tidal, right? We didn't own the company, but uh, we... We did so many mistakes that we kind of ended up selling it uh, to uh, JC, but it was kind of not with my own blood, sweat, and, and tears. And then at that point, and remember, remember, I made this plan like when I was 15. At that point, I thought I was like ready to build my own company. Uh, and that was a pretty kind of four-step plan that I followed for 15, uh, 15 years. Uh, and here we are uh, with Unicast today, which is a location data technology company that understands that people move around the planet and we are shy of a hundred people spread across the Norway where our data scientists data scientist team is and the commercial team in the U S and, uh, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. I mean, hold on, man. At 15, you had a four step plan. There was actually one that you even had a plan when I was 15. I don't think I ever stopped and thought about what, what do I want to do 20 years from now and the steps I'm going to get there. So that, that's amazing. And two, it was actually accurate enough that you followed it and it's been successful. 
are you just a different kind of 15 year old than the rest of us or what was going on that had you kind of yeah. thinking ahead like that i don't know i just like i like to have plans i like to have kind of these goals we need to get to them uh, people that know me is that i'm a big sucker for just progress like any type of progress like i love progress and Progress to me is getting a new client, seeing our revenue grow, of course, but progress is also mowing the lawn, right? You see that you kind of take like line by line by line, just just something that shows progress. That's a lot of fun. And you can't really show progress unless you have a plan, right? So mm. uh, I, I, I always been a guy that has uh, put together a lot of plans. Um, and yeah, this has been like a pretty exciting one and it's been long uh, in the works. Were there moments that you thought this plan might not work or did it just keep going one step to the next like you thought it would? Yeah, because there, there's so big components, right? So you're not really evaluating the plan on a daily, weekly basis, but you're like, okay, let's go to business school. I did that with my co-founder at, at uh, Unicast KJ, which uh, we also built title together. So that was kind of the first one. And that's when I was like, okay, next step, let's get into consulting big uh, four I always known that I wanted to do a startup and like build my own company at some time. Um, when I was like young, I I went to all the flea markets and I bought tons of stuff for like a dollar or like a cent. And then I sold it on the Norwegian version of uh, eBay mm-hmm. and made for a 10, 15 year old, a lot of money that uh, I could have fun with and buy toys and tech and gadgets, etc. So it's always like been a part of me, like how to build something and how to, yeah, how to see that progress. Uh, that's, that's what really uh, uh, inspires me and gets me excited. I'm curious, when you were at Tidal, uh, what, now looking back, what were the biggest things that you learned about startups and companies and things like that at, through your experience of being there in the early stages? Oh, like so, like so many things. And I think that one thing that we need to like, like Kej and I, uh, we were part of Title. We did Unicast. We have talked a lot about Title, and like that was an amazing journey. Like building the whole music streaming category alongside Spotify was fantastic. Uh, but we also did a lot of mistakes along the way that we now kind of try to or want to rectify with Unicast. Like this is kind of our second try. Okay, let's make this right now. And one of those mistakes we did was that. I mean, it's, it might be kind of good to know a bit of the Nordic tech scene at that time because it was very small. Like tech entrepreneurs didn't really exist. So you couldn't really go for people, uh, go to people to get advice. Uh, what Spotify did, they went kind of to the US immediately. What Tidal did, we were being too comfortable. We, were, we did Norway, we did Sweden, we did Denmark, we... We dared to go into Poland and Germany, but we never took on the biggest market, the U.S., which was kind of a coward move at mm. that point. But it, it was coward looking back, but we didn't even think that way. We, we didn't even think about U.S. as an opportunity for us. And ever since I had this kind of mantra that no matter what kind of business you're building, you're going to spend a lot of effort, energy, time, sacrifices and when i do that i want to be in the market where there are the most zeros in every single cell in the spreadsheet mm. and that was kind of the that was the uh decision kj and i made and i remember that moment so vividly 
like let's let's go to the U.S. And which was at that point very uncommon for two Norwegian guys to move to the to the U.S. Uh, I just got a daughter the year before. Uh, moved to New York. We didn't have I didn't know a single person in New York. We didn't have a product. We didn't have technology. We didn't have clients. Uh, but yeah, uh, we we just knew that. Let's not do that mistake with it at title one more time. So you, I love that. Uh, so you moved to New York without an idea, without connections. What did you do? Where did you, where did you start as you, you know, as you, as you made that big, that big brave move uh, across the ocean, what happened next? So what they did have, we did have an idea. Oh, right? okay. We had a very big, bold idea. We had an idea of how to understand how people move around on the planet. Right? Like that was something that no one had done before, but we didn't really know exactly how to do it. So uh, when I kind of came to New York with my wife and our daughter, she was one. I think this is the part I love about the U.S. is that people are so friendly. It's so easy to get in touch with people and people are so willing to help. So I just started going to a ton of conferences I started to reach out to business leaders, to people that knew something about the industry. And what I kind of learned is that if you have an exciting enough idea, if you have something that people will be like, wow, okay, that's pretty challenging. They will listen because they would like to understand how, how the hell are you going to solve that? Like, how are you going about that? So what, what we kind of wanted to do is understand people's movement and build data sets and insights that other companies can, uh, could use. And there was a lot of curiosity about how we were planning to do so. And that got me in touch with so many exciting people, which just kind of then the snowball started to uh, roll and we managed to hire some amazing people in the first years. We got the investors on board. Uh, and yeah, and then the company grew uh, quarter over quarter. Well, first off, that's incredibly encouraging to hear that your experience of us Americans is being very kind and willing to help and that kind of thing, especially because at least the impression I've always gotten is that worldwide, our image is not that way, that we can often be the assholes who are traveling to Europe and rude and that kind of thing. So I'm happy to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah, no, but that's, um, that is true. Uh, and, and this is the, this is the interesting kind of fun part about moving from Norway to the U.S. Because on the outside, right, Norway and U.S., it looks very similar, right? Both kind of democratic countries, very Western, very technology savvy, etc. So you kind of look at those countries as being very much the same and you don't really prepare. I didn't prepare at all. But if I, if I was moving to Japan, trust me, I would have read 15 books about Japanese culture, sure. uh, business ethics, etc. But then you move to the country and you discover that, wow, there are so many great differences. Something that you really appreciate, like uh, the openness and how people are willing to, to connect uh, each, each other. And then you also, also learn that, hey, there are some really big challenges that we're not prepared for. Like, I don't know how to tackle this because I don't have this in my culture and in my blood. Is there, any, is there anything in particular to the business part of the culture from Norway that you wish was adopted more or emulated here in America? I think there is, I think the Nordic culture is more transparent than the American culture. And I've given this a lot of thought. Why is it so? And when, when I talk about transparency, I, I talk about 
does the team dare to tell me exactly what they think? Thomas, you are absolutely wrong. We are going in the complete uh, wrong direction. And I see a very big difference there, meaning that I get way more direct feedback from our Norwegian side of the company than I get from the American side of the company. Hmm. And I was like, like why, why is that? Why, why am I always the last one to know something that goes on in the American team, right? If I ask them, is, is everything okay? Yeah, everything is good, right? And I'm exaggerating uh, a bit here now, sure, sure. Uh, but I think you get the point. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about this as well because I had to like understand why, why is this a cultural like work difference? And I think it, it very much goes back to the employment system in the fact that in Norway, it's very hard to get fired. Like there's like a three months notice. Hmm. If your performance isn't up to par, there's a whole process of kind of helping you get back on track. So the employer, um, the employee is very protected. In the US, it's kind of a different, right? It's like, yeah, you're at will and you can uh, leave the company on, on the day or you can be terminated from the company. Okay. But that, that, that doesn't build a very kind of open, transparent culture, right? Because then you're always like afraid of what you're telling either your boss or me or something because yeah. what might happen. And, and I'm not like, there are pros and cons with both, but that's just like a fact that I have to take into account that I had to learn that because of the way the employment system works is that people are slightly less transparent. Uh, and we, we try to... I tried to tell them, hey, I'm not this American boss that like tried to like take you. Right? We are, we come from Norway. Like we're used to conversations. We're used to problem uh, problem solving. So that's the, uh, I I I've been kind of scratching my head a lot about that and kind of really how to understand and how how to learn the U.S. Uh, employment system better. Uh, that's a fascinating perspective, especially seeing the employment system as being a contributor to to that issue. I've not thought about that before, but I think you're right. You know. Uh, Google did kind of an internal research project called Project Aristotle, where they wanted mm. to understand what what really made up, uh, what components were a part of their best performing teams, right? They, they didn't know. Yeah. Is it just putting the smartest people together? Is it mm. the smartest diversification of people? Get two engineers and one data scientist and one team leader, and that's the magic? Mm. That wasn't the case. They found mm. that their highest performing team wasn't about IQ or, or proficiency, the top trait was psychological safety. Yep. And what they meant, right. how they defined psychological safety was the willing to take interpersonal risks. Mm. And that's exactly mm. what you're talking about. So the risk might be disagreeing with everybody, that everybody yeah. thinks that this is a good idea and you have hesitations and you're, you feel free to say, actually, Thomas, I think that's not a good idea and here's why. Mm. Right? Mm. And so they said, whatever that kind of trust those teams had where people could be transparent, speak the truth, have a diverging opinion or get something wrong actually yep. led to quicker and better innovation than the teams that were all playing kind of safe around each other. And so I, that's it. That sounds very similar to what you're saying. Is it not? Yeah. Right. And, and especially in the startup, right. Where we make so many mistakes all the time and we try and we, we iterate and like, there's, there's just like a handful of things that actually go well. <laughs> Most things go sideways uh, but we just need to accept that, right? And try again. And yeah, so so that that's kind of one of the things that I like that we try to kind of take from Norway to the US. And we 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 talk a lot about how we like um, balance the Atlantic divide as we talk about it. Um, 
But then what, like what I love, and I'm just going to bring up a couple of examples. Like one of the things that um, I really enjoy about the um, American way of working is, and it might come kind of back to what we discussed initially that when I came here, like everybody was so helpful and you were a bit surprised about, Hey, like, do you see American as like helpful and uh, um, supportive, et cetera. And it's because everybody is like driven by something and they're driven by their own success because no one is going to take care of me yeah. besides myself in, in the Nordic countries, you have the welfare system, right? So it's like, yeah, whatever happened, the government will pay my salary, pay my apartment, pay for my medical bills, schools, etc. So I would say that like, there is, is this kind of hunger yep. that exists yep. in the U S like, like the American dream. I've been like American dream. What's that? Like, no, no, I, I get it. Like, People, people have that hunger that I really appreciate because they understand that it's about me and it's about my, me determining my success in the future. Oh, I couldn't. Yeah, that is so true. My friends and I were just having this conversation, you know, just like you said, on both sides, there's pros and cons, right? So mm-hmm. the pro of kind of growing up in America is the entrepreneurial spirit, is that feeling of like, no one's going to rescue me. I, mm. you know, I got to go out and do this myself and I can the, also the belief yeah. that I can, I can do this. I yeah. can figure this out. Yeah. The yeah. con is, uh, this guy, Brad Stolberg. I'm looking to my left cause I, I have his book. Um, yeah. he coined this term heroic individualism. And so okay. the dark side of that, um, of that positive, right? So the positive is the entrepreneurial mindset The I got, I can do this. The dark side is that you have this belief that you always have to one up yourself or one up other mm. people, that mm. there's this heroic individual uh, competitiveness that causes people to suffer in silence or that would cause yeah. someone, let's say for you to say, Thomas, you know, let's say you check in with the American team and you say, how's everything going? That heroic individualism is going to make them go great. Everything's going great. Even if it's <laughs> not because in their mind, they're like, it is not okay for it not to be going okay. You know, and so yeah. I've got to fake it till I make it. I've got to show tough. I've got to prove that I can do this. And it, so that's yeah. the dark side. Is it often we're not good at asking for help. We're, we're, yeah. we're not good at opening up about that. Does that make sense? No. And like Drew, I've been having this conversation with uh, quite a lot of people. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not really about what's bad about this way of working or that way of working, this country, that country, but it's all about learning and understanding the nuances and how to adapt to them. And everything that is like, is a good thing has some cons, right? Everything that is like negative right. has some positives uh, with it. I just find it fascinating to like learn this and like try to maneuver this and scratch my head. Like, how, how do I, like, how do I get better at this? Because it's, um, it's, it's something that I wasn't prepared for uh, at all. I think as a human being, it's, it's critical for us to understand how to, learn from anyone and you know we call it eat the meat spit out the bones right where it's like hey man take what's good Mm. take what you know is good for you and then spit out the bones there's gonna be bones somewhere in there that you know need to digest but especially for you beyond being just a human being well-rounded you're leading a global team and that's got to be a challenge having just different mindsets different cultures let alone different time zones, yeah. right? Yeah. So what has that been like? What has been the challenge and the opportunity that's present in leading a global team like yours? Well, we talked about the cultural uh, aspect. Uh, of course, you have the time difference aspect. I think I, 
I went to school in California. So if I could choose, I would much rather live in California, but nine hour time difference to the Arsenal team versus six, that's like night and day. So there wasn't really a, um, like option to move to the West, the West, West coast. Uh, but it has, it has led to, uh, it has led to kind of from early on, uh, back in or in 2014, 2015, that we did a lot of, uh, asynchronous work as a team because we just, couldn't be on the same time time difference and our mm. cto frodo he's been like the he's always talked a lot about that like hey we need to document better we need to be like better at communicating when we're not on the same time zone in the same zoom etc and i do recall that when the world shut down in march 2020 right because of the of the pandemic i kind of gathered the whole team in, in a conference room like hey okay guys and girls we're going remote now uh, this will be the last day in the office. Like pe- people panic, right, at that time, especially in New York, since so that people got sick and uh, hospitalized quite uh, quickly. And I was like, yeah, we need like a, we need a way. How are we going to work now together? We, we need some schedules, and I'm not sure like why. Maybe I was like panicking a bit myself, uh, probably. And then the team was like, Thomas, chill, like easy. We've been doing this for many, many years. Like we've been working remotely. Like mm. in a way for many, many years. So yeah, like I was, I didn't think about that, but we, for us, it was very uh, easy. It's not easy to be remote only, but it was much easier than I anticipated because we had that time zone difference and we had that for many, many years. Um, but it's something that uh, will need uh, focus, right? And attention uh, even more now because it's... Um, it is hard to build a culture when people are remote and you don't see people and you just kind of connect through a through a through a Zoom. I think that's going to be one of the sure. one of the kind of key things. A lot of startups are going to look back on in the next three to five years and be like, "Yeah, you know what? We didn't do that well. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have the mindset to do it." But yeah, we will uh, we will learn. Do you see a difference in your teams culturally? in terms of how they value taking care of themselves. I feel like, again, I know we're speaking in generalizations, but the West, we can be unhealthy in, in a variety of ways, you know, whether it's our diet or our love of working long hours, kind of the workaholism mm. type thing and almost seeing, almost seeing grinding as a badge of honor, yeah. you know, uh, and at least my impression of some of the kind of Nordic countries is, they value happiness or they value rhythm or they value taking care of themselves and being outside. And, uh, is that play itself out even in the, in the business context, or is that maybe not as true as I think it is? No, I, I think the, the pandemic was like, had a change in the fact that people took more care about themselves. Like they, they, they don't have to commute those three, four hours every single day. That's, that's intense, right? That's a Huge. lot of hours. Uh, uh, more kind of flexible work hours. You don't have to be like, you don't have to be kind of like at your desk chained all the time. Uh, I think you have to understand as a leader that you have to value your people based on the effort that they are putting in and not the amount of hours they spend or how many hours they are on their Slack. Uh, and that that's the transition for, for many. Um, and, I, and I think we're going to see it over the next couple of years that, even though it's challenging, right? You just have to give people that freedom. Uh, and I, I don't think really from like a talent perspective, you can't compete. I think if you're a company now saying everybody in the same office five days a week, your talent pool is going to be very limited, right? Very limited. Right. So right. 
I don't think like we as, especially in the tech industry, we don't have a choice. Like we have to, this is the way it is, period. It's not going to change. Hybrid is kind of what a lot of companies are, are seeing, but we need to find ways to make this way of working uh, better and even more fruitful and better uh, for the companies. And that is not done in the 24 months period of time since COVID uh, hit us. Yeah. I, I want to make sure that I get the chance to ask you from your, your perspective and knowledge and expertise in the tech startup world and uh, scene, just what in your, pers- in your opinion, what do you think we're seeing right now? Right. Like just as we look around at what's happening with the, you know, a lot of uh, companies folding and, you know, some are saying this is the best time to invest in that kind of scene. Some are saying this is the absolute worst time to invest in a tech startup company. And, yeah. uh, you know, I've heard of, you know, some are saying, oh, man, it was the crazy valuations from two years ago that really got everyone in trouble. So I just I'm curious, like, what do you what do you think is going on right now? Yeah, I, I think what is going on now is healthy. That's how I look at it, because um, there's no doubt that the last few years has been just an influx of capital and an influx of capital requires significant growth and return on that capital that has been invested, which is why right. it puts a lot of pressure on the companies to grow, grow, grow. And in order to grow, you need to hire, hire, hire. So it just becomes this kind of vicious uh, circle now as Capital is not as accessible in the market. In the market, of course, companies need need to change uh, their course. And I think that going more to like sustainably built companies is better. It's better for the company's ability to to provide better services because they really have to think about how can we get sticky clients and not just pour a lot of marketing dollars behind it uh, and get new customers in and they might churn out. We just need to kind of refill that again. Uh, and at the same time, I think it's kind of healthy from a, from like, what is a successful company? Because I think there's a very misled in the tech scene. What is a successful company? And yeah. a year ago, it used to be, unless you have 150% year over year growth at 10 million in ARR, you're not even fundable. Investors won't even look at you. That's crazy. Mm. That's that's a highly successful company, right? Even if you're at 70%. But I think I just learned that during the last six months now, and we've kind of seen a bit of the, the meltdown. I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and a lot of my fellow co- co-founders, we have we realized that startups are like a product of the financial industry that is placing bets on certain company to give them return. Uh and it's kind of now for us kind of to, to take a bit of ownership of lead, right? Or like, hey, you know what? Let, let's build sustainable companies now. I think that's, that's always been a part of my way of building, building businesses. Um, you need to be able to defend your valuation to the, uh, to the next time. So, yeah, I, I, I see it as healthy, even though there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of unfortunate um, destinies for people that are losing their jobs and they are being let go. Uh, but I, I, I honestly think like a reset was uh, needed and healthy. Right. But take it seriously. Right. It's, it's, it is going to grow, but maybe at a different growth curve. So do you think that next go around, because things are cyclical, right? So the next go around where there is a lot of capital in the market looking to be invested and 
someone's willing to give you the founder a crazy amount of capital for a crazy amount of uh you know evaluation do you think that the lesson is that we actually should be a lot more hesitant and cautious at just going with that right because it sounds good on the front end like you're willing to give me how much money and yeah. you're you know you're willing to value my company at what but now we're seeing how much trouble that got them in when the company couldn't live up to that valuation and yep. didn't even know what to do with that money. Yeah. You think we should be more cautious about that? In the perfect world, yes. But will it happen? No. Because when uh, <laughs> that money is being uh, presented to you and there are requirements of a uh, hundred plus year of, of your growth minimum in order to kind of compete with your peers, you, you have to take it, right? Like there is no, uh, there is no other option uh, really. So yeah, I think... I think you'll have some kind of some bold uh, entrepreneurs that will say, no, you know what? We're building this in a different way. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm curious, and I, I don't know, and I'm, I've, been ask, I've been asking this to a lot of investors, uh, and no one can really kind of seem to give me like the same answers. They all, all look at the market a bit uh, differently. And that is, to what extent will profitability matter going forward? Will profitability really be uh, like a key parameter that investors are looking for because if that is the case yes less less money less burn is key but if they have just kind of forgotten what happened in the next six months when we get into 2024 i think we might be back on the same uh the same wagon again why would pro i'm you know this is a scene i'm not in very much so, so why would profitability not be the main thing that they're paying attention to because they care more about growth they can care more about your arr number how as long as you grow that fast enough, you can burn a lot of capital. Like that has been the VC model, right? For so many years. And that is what's happened in the last uh, five to 10 years, significantly like growth for uh, all costs. But um, I personally how do you think make money? Changes. How do you make money? Even if you're growing like that, if it's not profitable, who's making money? Is it just on the exit? Is yeah. it just because we've grown it to this sale that we can then sell it and we can make money that way? Is that it? Yeah, correct. And this is where different ways of val uh, validating uh, uh, companies, right? You, you, you value companies on their ARR. So you get like ARR multiple, so like your 10 million ARR times a number. Uh, if you go more in, into the private equity space, it's more, what is your EBITDA? Like, what is your kind of bottom right. line? Like that, that's what they care, care about. So, yeah. but this is, I'm not an expert in this field. I focus on building companies, but I have to like maneuver and like try to understand how the market is, uh, is flowing so we can navigate uh, within it. But I'm a, yeah, a lot of people are losing their jobs and that, that sucks. That is challenging for many, especially in today's financial uh, situation. But if you take that away and look at the startup scene, I think kind of more sustainable growth is, uh, it is healthy. Yeah. A uh, random question just popped in my head that I'm curious mm. if you have an answer for, but is there, is there anything that you feel you have a, a pretty strong opinion on in business that is somewhat contrarian to popular thinking or popular uh, philosophy of business. Hmm. Good question. There was one thing that popped in my mind here as we passed like the first half uh, half year is, and this goes back to progress, right? I mentioned that I'm a big, big fan of uh, progress and, I see a lot of companies and kind of leaders, the way that they think about progress is, okay, this is my goal. And this is how far I have left towards that, that goal. And that is, I, I think that's healthy, right? It is healthy because 
you will always kind of aspire to something and you know where the finish line is, like what do I need to get there? But I think what, what companies and leaders are forgetting is sometimes, and at least once every six months, they should kind of look back and see, okay, what progress have we made? Because when I look at Unicast, January 1st, 2022 versus middle of this year, wow, like that's, that's a completely different company, right? But we don't feel that when we make this incremental changes yeah. every single day. It's the same thing as you look at yourself in a mirror, right? And I don't feel I've aged a day when I look at myself four years ago. And then you show me a picture four years ago. And it's like, okay, yeah, I've gotten a bit older. And I think that, <laughs> that thing we're kind of building a company as well, just, just to acknowledge and celebrate a bit of the progress that you have made because we are moving at lightning speed, but we we forget that. And I think that also gives, at least that gives me the hope and believe and inspiration to say, if we could do this from January until July, okay, you know what? We definitely can kind of get to our, our December goal in the next six months. Uh, yeah, I love that, man. Like I said, we can, we can often get discouraged by how much farther we have to go instead of being encouraged by how far we've come. Right. right. Yeah. And that's everything in the life, especially of, of a founder and a business owner is your own internal, you know, energy and belief and hope and drive. Yeah. It often is, it's directly related to the perspective you have at that moment. Yeah. You're either overwhelmed and daunted and, you know, kind of cowering or you're thinking, all right, we got challenges, but man, we've, we've crushed some yeah. stuff before we can do this. Yeah. Right. And I need to remind myself of that because I'm, I'm not super good at it. It's like, yeah, we hit the goal. What's the next one? Uh, and I think that's that's not uh, that's not the way to do it. I am aware of it. It's a blind spot. Uh, I'm kind of like thinking of. So I have to kind of find these techniques. Techniques. Okay. Okay. Right. Six months in, where were we six months ago? Okay, we were we've doubled the team in six months. We got all these amazing people mm. on board. We've improved processes. It's still chaos. Trust me. It's a lot of chaos as it, it always is. But we have gotten so much smarter and. Um, yeah, I think that's not kind of super controversial in regards to your question, but at least uh, something that not many people think about. Measure progress by looking uh, backwards. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, so I want to make sure before we go to the lightning round questions, I, I am really fascinated by your business, and I want to understand it just a little bit better, uh, especially for the implications of what it could be in the future. Uh, but tell me, I know for you, it's going to be super obvious. For me, it doesn't, it is not obvious yet. Why does it matter that we know that we have information about how, you know, people, how they move around the globe? What, when you were thinking about that idea, as you've been working with it, what yeah. is the relevancy of that? Yeah, because it's pretty, it's pretty kind of basic, like data drives decisions. That is clear. Like the best decisions are made when you have the right actionable data and there's tons of data out there. There's been a lot of social data, a lot of online data, what we click and what, what we read. Also a lot of music data, what, what we listen to uh, and so on. But there hasn't been too much data understanding about how people move around on the planet. Meaning what kind of stores do you go to? Where do you travel? Uh, what kind of preferences do you have for restaurants? And we aggregate all this into like big data sets. So it's all about understanding trends and patterns. And this is something that is very valuable for right now, real estate investors, because we saw post COVID, right? The people fled New York, moved to Florida. A lot of people in California moved to Boise, Idaho. And 
what real estate investors are wondering is, are people going to stay there or are they going to return? What kind of suburb out of New York are seeing the most influx? And that we can do mm. when we look at aggregated mobility insights. So we have many different uh, use cases um, and we do a lot of around like site selection as well. Imagine you are a retailer and you say, hey, I'm going to open up this new store. Should I do like the corner of 5th and 33rd or Park and 64th in New York City? How would you know? Like what people used to do was that they sent people out there and they counted how many people like for a, a week. <laughs> yeah, pretty old school. Uh, now we can just look at mobility insights and tell you what neighborhood has the most foot traffic and does this foot traffic meet your demographic profile uh, in regards to the people that you want to sell to. So it's pretty uh, fascinating stuff. Is it incredibly com complicated and, and complex to gather and make sense of that data or is it more simple than I would think? It, it is very hard. It's super hard. I have no clue uh, how... Um, our amazing data scientist team in Norway can do this. Uh, I'm not like the technical uh, CEO, but yeah, we spent six, seven years now, like trying to figure out how to build accurate models. Uh, it's been very hard to collect the data and it, it's been harder to, to kind of how to take these raw data signals and turn it into something that is meaningful and consistent that other companies are willing to pay hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars for every single year to improve their, their business. So we have, um, we have an amazing data science and data engineering team based in Norway. And uh, there are really kind of a uh, masterminds behind how to understand human mobility and how to build these advanced uh, data models. I want to talk about something you just mentioned briefly, cause I have a friend right now who is diving into uh, his first startup. Mm -hmm. And so he's learning, you know, all about, what it means and the options available and I could do it this way versus that way. And one of the things that he was talking about was freeing to him was that he didn't necessarily have to be the technical founder hmm. that he was, you know, as he was learning, like, Oh, actually my skill set, skill set is just building things. I am fantastic at marshalling resources, creating vision, getting people going, but it doesn't necessarily mean I have to be the technical know-how of the thing we're doing. I could partner with someone that is really good at that. And you mentioned, I'm not the technical founder, mm -hmm. you know, meaning like I'm not, the, it's not my unique expertise in data collection, but yet you know how to work with that to build this company. And so I just want you to elaborate that, on that for a little bit, because uh, I think that'd be helpful for anyone listening uh, that we fall into that trap of, if I'm going to be successful at this, I have to be both of those things. Mm -hmm. And is that always the case? I, I think it's very few people on this planet that is just as good tech savvy as they are commercially savvy and building a company in tech requires both. So I think you have to kind of lean in on what you're best at and that's what you have to really nurture. Like that's what you have to improve. Uh, I remember that early days of like, yeah, should I maybe like learn how to code? Should, and my co-founder Kelly was like, Thomas, forget it. It's going to take forever. <laughs> are you not going to, you can write hello world. Like that's, that's where you will get to, right? And he's absolutely yeah. right. So I've been just kind of honing in on my uh, strong skills, which is kind of the, the business, the commercial, the operational part. But then you have to find who is your counterpart. Like who is that counterpart or that team that has those um, um, skill sets that I don't have, right? And, and that's, the, that's what is hard. And it's especially hard because 
it's very easy for me to hire someone on the sales side because I know how to evaluate that, right? Because like, that's my kind of mindset right. as well. It's very hard for me to evaluate someone that is a data scientist because that's not my territory. So it makes it, it makes it kind of even harder to find that um, other part of the equation, which is, uh, which is needed. But I do think it's, um, it's overrated that you need to hold, hold both. And uh, there's a lot of great products out there that doesn't get sold. Uh, so I think you need to have like a good commercial uh, savviness as well. To me, that's incredibly freeing. And I don't know if it's because of the heroic individualism, you know, seeping its way into my natural thinking, mm. which is I must be good at everything. Mm. Uh, but it's incredibly freeing to think, all right, if I'm really great technically, but I have no clue how to build scale market, whatever, I could just partner with someone that's great at that or vice versa. Yeah. If I'm just a great leader mm. and I'm great at the, the commercial side of this, I don't have to go learn to code, right? Yeah. Like to me, that's, that's really empowering. And it also helps you value other members that you understand how critical they yeah. are, right? Yeah. And like being a single founder must be uh, terrible because you have no one kind of to speak to, no one to like bounce ideas off, no one to kind of share your wins or share your losses and share your, your concerns. So yeah, I'm never advising anyone to be a single founder. That must be super tough. Uh, but yeah, to find that, Soulmate, right? I found that in KJ and we've been working together for 15, 16 years now. Uh, so we are kind of very much entrenched on how we want to build companies and he's good at some things and I'm good at others, but like we know how to overlap our skill sets and that's what, uh, that's what builds uh, a good team. So good, man. Glad we got into that some. Um, okay, my friend, I want to make the most of your time. I know we're, we're running short here. And so I want to go ahead and get our five lightning round questions for you. So again, these are five questions we've asked every guest on the podcast. We'll start with number one. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? Uh, every day counts. Every day counts. Why do you think that that's, came to mind? That's the startup. Every day counts. We have limited resources, ah. lim 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 limited funding. Every day we can make a difference. Like it. It also makes me think of your 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 incremental progress. You know exactly. that focus on the one percent better every day. That's good. Yeah. All right. Number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also, what was the worst, if there was some? Single best. I think I will go back to the, to the one I said about being in, in the market with the most zeros. Uh, I got that from a business uh, kind of friend colleague, and like that really struck to me. So we did it wrong in title. We did it right at at Unicast. Very happy for that. Like wrong. You know what? There, there are so many bad advices out there because. <laughs> it's it's just it's amazing and, and that's what is very com confusing because a lot of people give advice without even having the expertise to give that advice right yeah. uh yeah so i wouldn't say like many bad advice i just focus on triangulating all the input i get and like try to make up my own mind uh but yeah i don't have like a big piece there okay cool number three what currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization Yeah, it's, it's this kind of when you grow and you kind of start to put on some meaningful revenue and a lot of clients, the, the pressure to continue growing just gets bigger. 
it's very, mm. it's very kind of nice and free. And it's a honeymoon in early days of a starter, right? Because one client, two clients, three clients, but suddenly you have to get a lot of clients in every single month. That always causes a lot of uh, stress. Like how can we keep up that, that momentum? Because that requires a lot of uh, operational excellence and uh, great go-to-market. So that kind of, that is always a concern for me. And like, we have grown a lot in the last six, uh, six, six months. I'm always like thinking and worry about the people really know how they can contribute because back to everyday counts, everybody can make an impact. Everybody can, if you're on the commercial side, like make a couple extra phone calls, right? Take one initiative to build a case, a case study. But does everybody know that right. what their role is and how they can uh, contribute? That's, that's been a concern in the last six months as we've grown uh, this much. Makes total sense. Thank you. Okay, question four is, what is the BHAG for this business? Or in other words, the big, exciting, uh, kind of long-term goal that you have in mind? Yes, like when we started Unicast, it was about how to build understanding of human mobility. Right, how to understand how people move around on the planet. But let's not build a human mobility data company for retail only, for real estate only. Like how can we build like the platform, the infrastructure that can power multiple companies in multiple verticals and multiple geographies over time? Like that's that's our big hairy goal. Not to be yeah. a small player or like a big player in a small industry, but how to be that location data infrastructure layer. And and we are we made a lot of good uh, progress on that. There's quite a bit left as well, but yeah, that's what we are striving towards every single day. Okay. I like it. All right. Number five is just a kind of fun, creative question. Uh -huh. So if you could hop into a DeLorean, like back to the future and you get to go back to your past and deliver just one message to yourself, when would you go back and what message would you give to your younger self? Well, you know, then I would go back to when title was like very, very, very early. And I wish that I had met that person that told me, hey, you know what? Go to the market with the most zeros in the in the spreadsheet. And I was just going to mm. knock that knowledge into my head and buy a flight ticket and put us on the first flight to the U.S. and just go from there. Love it. Thomas, this has been a fascinating and certainly an enlightening conversation for me. So I thank you so much for your time, my man, and for sharing your story and wisdom with us. It's been truly helpful. Awesome. Very fun, Ray. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.